there's a lot of room for improvement with communication, both internally and externally at dual temp. I think that we could solve the million dollar problem in 30 days for you. Is there a correlation that jobs that are outside the perimeter are more profitable or not? One strategy might be actually you take a hit on your profit margin, hurt your competition so then their staff is underutilized and then you use it as a way to swoop them up. That's, that's, that's a great idea. Do you make it a continuous point to perceive that about you? We could certainly do a better job. How are you guys communicating and managing all the work? You're using a communications tool when you need to be using a work management tool. Welcome back to the Optimize Podcast, the only show that solves business challenges in real time. Join Nick Sonnenberg, a world-leading operational efficiency expert and marketing legend, Jay Abraham. Sit in on a new kind of conversation designed to help us answer the most difficult question of all. What am I not seeing? In this episode, we're going to find out how a leading HVAC company can capture millions of dollars of missed revenue by simply optimizing the way they communicate. Bradley Noel is the president of DualTemp, a prominent HVAC business known for system design, build, and installation, but he faces critical communication challenges, needs to find solutions to boost team efficiency and drive future profitability. And before we get into the show, if you'd like to get in the hot seat, just head to the optimizepodcast.com and apply today. Let's get into the episode with Nick, Jay, and our guest, Bradley Noel. Welcome back to the Optimize Podcast. I am your co-host, Nick Sonnenberg, along with Jay Abraham. Hi, everybody. Hey, Jay. And on today's episode, we have Brad, who runs an interesting HVAC business called Dual Temp. Welcome, Brad. Thank you for having me, Nick and Jay. It's great to see you guys. Yeah, this will be very interesting. Good to have you on, Brad. We can't wait to explore the intricacies of your business and identify some opportunities and areas that we can hopefully impact. So everybody, this is a very unique, integrative podcast, unlike any other one, where Nick and I bring to bear our dualities of complementary advisory consultative, let's call it prowess. I come from the world of all kinds of revenue enhancement methodologies and proprietary technologies and and strategies. And Nick comes from a very, very extensive world of operational efficiency. And the combination is interesting in itself. If it were just theoretically presented, you'd be very intrigued, but be adapted, adopted, modified, conform it to the very, very scenario-specific issues of the client. So Bradley, get ready for a really fascinating process. Nick and I do it a little bit different. I ask a lot of questions. And as you're starting to answer, I have a tendency to seem interruptively rude, but it is not an effrontery. It is me needing one of two things, either understanding and wanting to move on because the time is very limited. My desire as is Nick's to add value is unimaginable. And then number two, if I don't understand things, I need clarity, whether it's a concept, an abbreviology, acronym, anything like that. Nick does it very similarly, but he's probably more polite. So if you got one thing out of us and that was all you got that would transform your business success, profitability, 
competitive advantage, viability, what would it be and why? If you got two, what would they be and why? Just so we know the game we're supposed to be playing, at least from your uh, point of view, we oftentimes identify huge gaps in perception that we can align. And we do a lot of what I'll call paradigmectomies, which are shifting the way you look at how your business, how you and your business interacts with the marketplace and how to gain greater advantage and access. So why don't you tell us, and then Nick, you can start why you're here. I mean, besides the fact that Nick and I are just wonderful conversationalists, and even if it's done audio, we're really handsome guys and we're so interesting, but you're here for another reason. What is it? <laughs> sure. So, so uh, at, you know, at a, at a high level, right, there's a lot of room for improvement with communication, both internally and externally, a dual temp, right? So we're a, uh, a an HVAC and plumbing company, and it's it's essentially the opposite of like like a car production line where everything's controlled and you just you, you move in a controlled environment from one step to the next step to the next step to the next step. We're doing large commercial and industrial construction projects and uh, and servicing these projects as well. And it's a completely uncontrolled environment where every project is different, right? And there's tons of people in the communication chain of exactly what needs to get done on these projects, what's included and what's excluded from these projects. So there's not really a standard protocol that can just be overlaid on everything. That's right. That's right. There, there, there was one gentleman who was trying to do construction in a factory and then move that out, you know, into the real world. And I, I believe they went bankrupt in the last six months. Ooh. But it was it, it would have been a good idea. But but uh, but it's it's the opposite of that. So a question from me, please. So are you more commercial than residential or not residential at all? So we do zero residential. Okay. And mm. are most of your jobs, are they bid-based or not? Yes, they, they are bid-based. And how many, uh, just curiously, how many uh, geographically, do you mind if we identify where you are just for mine? No, that, that's, that's fine. So we're, we're in Eastern Pennsylvania. We're about an hour North of Philadelphia and uh, we go an hour and a half in all directions that we can drive to. Okay. You know, so from, from that area. In the course of a given, uh, and I don't know if there's seasonality or if it's constant, in the course of a, of a given week, month, uh, quarter, season, whatever, how many, how many jobs do you bid on average? So, and I'm not sure I have a clear answer for you. We have multiple different divisions between construction, building automation, controls, and service, and each one of those is different. Now right. I do log those values, um, but I don't have them readily available. We, okay. we, we bid quite a bit of work and, uh, and our win percentage varies for each one of those. Could you describe maybe the last big project that you guys did just to be able to wrap our head around? What were you doing? How much did roughly what's the dollar amount people are paying and how long's how long is the typical project or job take to complete? Sure. So, so the dollar volume of our typical job is uh, it ranges it, the range is probably five thousand to six million dollars. Okay, our average job is probably eight hundred thousand dollars to to a million dollars, something like that. Okay, all right. Mm -hmm. And as far as duration to complete, call it nine months to a year. Okay, nine months to a year, and it's anywhere like a, it's it's an hour and a half outside anywhere from your headquarters. So it could be that's right three hours and from dual temp headquarters. We can travel an hour and a half in any direction. But that stated, do most of the job, if you look at the 80-20 rule, are most of them in Philly or, or are they not? 
Right. So, so we're, we're an hour North of Philly. And I would say it is, it is, it's, it looks kind of like, like a target sign where most of our jobs are within a half an hour, fewer jobs are within 45 minutes. And then as you get out in the perimeter, there's even fewer. But let me ask you a different question. And Nick, you can pick up on this. Even though there are fewer, is there a correlation that jobs that are outside the perimeter are more profitable or not? And there may not be. I just wonder if there's any correlation that you've not looked at. There's definitely profitable jobs on the exterior of our perimeter. So in a typical deal uh, that you're bidding, how many people are you bidding against? So, you know, in an ideal situation, we're, we're, we're the chosen mechanical contractor and we're the trusted advisor, right? And, and it's, it's a single price. But realistically, we're going to get a price check on the back end with us knowing about it or not, right? Just, just to make sure our prices is, is uh, reasonable. On average, though, three mechanical contractors would be a good number, right? If, if there's an opportunity and they say there's eight or 10 mechanical contractors bidding it and we don't have an advantage, we don't have a relationship, we're just going to move on. Yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, I have had a, a number of clients that were government bid. And I think somebody we might be talking to next is. And even though it is it is theoretically purely price-based, relationship and historic experience has something to do with it. So do you have very strong relationships that you try to maintain with whoever, if you're a sub, whoever the general is, or, or I mean, and, and do you have a team that just constantly is working with them? Yeah, so, so we do have strong relationships um, with both general contractors and engineers who are, you know, designing projects for architects and owners. We find that if we, you know, we do a great job for the engineer and kind of patch any gaps that might be in there, that we become the recommended contractor on their next job if the owner doesn't have, you know, a, a preferred mechanical contractor. All things being equal, if you're at least in range uh, bid-wise, if you are favored a provider by the architect or the or whatever the the designer of the project you tend to have an advantage so but are we really trying to solve first and foremost how in the world you handle all the, the variability and that's that, that no two jobs are the same or are we trying to also help you grow the business both both the and and going back to your earlier question was was what's secondarily you know could could we uh what I look to, to get out of this, this uh, call here. So, so we have a, a specific KPI, which is uh, uh, gross margin per man hour. Okay. Okay. What we have found is that, you know, if, if we were to take every man hour and increase that. So over the course of the year, for example, we work 200,000 man hours, right? And if we can take the margin on that man hour and increase it, Every dollar that's two hundred thousand dollars that that drops at the bottom line, right? And do you and is it a general or do you, a general percentage or do you have different yield factors for different skill sets? So we do it based on project. Okay. So so a certain project will be at you know fifty dollars an hour on average. A different job could be at seventy dollars per hour. Okay. A bad job could be at negative ten. How do you pay? Are, are, are these employees or they're, they're contractors for you and they're getting paid hourly work? There, there are employees, there are, are, are tradespeople, and uh, they are paid hourly. Okay. So they're hourly employees. That's correct. So for commutes, are you paying them commute time? So anything over an hour, we pay them commute time. So as we get to the outside of our perimeter, you know, you can build in a half hour each way. 
And and why invent a new metric called gross profit per man hour versus we're just talking about gross profit margin? I mean, at the end of the day, sure. isn't it just gross profit margin? You get revenue and then you've got your cost of goods sold, which is what we're talking about here. And you want you want to increase your gross profit margin. What's the, what, the per hour, making them more efficient per hour, ultimately, doesn't that just increase gross profit margin? So the reason that we're we're looking at this specific per man hour is our limiting factor is our skilled tradespeople, right? So, and it turns out that a job could have, at an extreme case, it could be 100% labor, okay? And if, mm-hmm. if you marked that up, just call it 20%, right? That would be the worst case scenario, all labor. Traditionally, our jobs would be more like 25% labor, 75% like equipment, material, ductwork, pipe, things that like more that. Profitable Per man hour, that would be sub- significantly more profitable. And our limiting factor being man hours, we're trying to find a job which is 20% labor, 80% of these other items that also get marked up. And then per man hour, that skews higher. On projects that have more, let's call it, product quotient than labor quotient, I mean, are you, do you have to be real competitive on those or are there, I mean, are there situations where you can get higher margins or you have to be very, very lean on those? There are situations where, where it is less competitive and you can get more margin and there's, there's jobs that are more complex and will have less competitors and you can also get higher margin on. I mean, so, but is everything bid or are some of the jobs just, you got it because you're the you're, you're the trusted one that they know can pull it off? Some are, but th- those are, are few and far between, probably less than 5% of our work. So what I was going to ask, Bradley, was from your heart, are you actually, and when I say this, I'm not demeaning you, it's just a relative assessment of any or all advantage you possess. Would you uh, honestly state that your company performs superior and all jobs, certain kinds of skill sets, you're just, you know, far away, the superior one, you got more, more expertise, skill, whatever, or is it pretty much a very competitive environment on ability to do any kind of job? So where, where our expertise lends well to is a job which has a higher complexity, all right, where we can wrap in our building automation and control. So those are like temperature controls, light controls, things like that. Most companies don't have that in-house. They have to sub that out. Our service department, where they can do a significant startup on the equipment where it's involved because it's complex equipment. Um, that's a higher margin line of our business is our service. And then some of the expertise, that, so like in a hospital, right? When you get hooked up to uh, medical air, all the piping that, that's involved with installing, that's like real uh, certification heavy that not everybody can compete on. You make it a continuous point to establish that advantage to the market? Do they know that? And do they see that? And do they, do they uh, really perceive that about you? We could certainly do a better job on that front. It would seem that if the whole world, again, I mean, I don't know whether it'd be through communication, through, you know, live or, you know, in-person or webinar type things, you kept really uh, sharing your expertise to establish that. I mean, there, by the way, with the concept of a unique selling proposition, just FYI, you don't have to have one. You can have different ones for different applications. But if you're, if you are, 
you know, infinitely more capable, skilled, experienced at it. And I'll tell you a fun story and then I'm going to pass it to Nick because I don't want to dominate. So I had a, a client many years ago that was one of the, it, they were the, the preeminent uh, company at the time. I don't know if they still are in the field of litigation, strategic consulting. When a large lawsuit would happen, usually with corporations, they would basically represent either side. It was almost like a forensic accountant. So it could take the plaintiff or the defendant. And the first thing they would do when they were competing against other companies, even though they were the largest, was they were able to show that they had more experience, more successful winning experience in that category because they would just look at all the different cases they had advised on and they had a system where they could show they were the expert at whether it was Southern venue, whether it was, you know, Asian, you know, defendant, whether it was, you know, uh, judges that were very, very impulsive, but they had all these different slices and dices. And it might be just as a long-term uh, positioning strategic recommendation that you start establishing and isolating and and uh, denominating all the ways you have superiority in those complex jobs and getting that word continually, continually established in the mind's eye of everybody who could be an influence in any future job. Excellent idea. All right. I got like five things to go over with you, Bradley. So I want to talk about the bidding. I want to talk about gross profit margin. I want to talk about forecasting and predicting capacity. And I want to talk about your original thing, which was the communication stuff. Yeah. So bidding might be a quick one. Is there any database of historical data of bids or are you capturing your historical bids that you won and lost that you can then use to re-optimize bids in the future when you propose? Yeah, we, we do. We, we basically have data back to 1970 of everything that we bid. But, but even, even more important than winning the job is how do we actually do on the job, right? So when you estimate it, what do you think it's going to cost? But then you find out how much does it actually cost? And you're capturing all of that so you can get smarter yes. at, at bidding? Okay, good. And that's Correct. robust. No, no. Okay, great. The next thing about the profit margin per man hour I don't know how your account, your bookkeeping is structured, but the way that we do ours is we use QuickBooks and then we use classes and then different things that we sell have different classes. For example, we have an affiliate relationship with a bunch of different software companies. So when we sell, when we resell that, it gets classified as you know software reselling. And then that is categorized in a certain way because that has a different profit margin, gross profit margin profile than when we do our training and consulting services. That's a different class, different profit margin. And I think like like yours, we could sell a billion dollars of software sales. There's no there's no capacity. It's infinite. Versus, I have a, a constraint on human human capital and capacity on the service side of things. Right. So, do you very, categorize? Very similar. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, are you? Um, categorizing your books that, that way, utilizing, do you use QuickBooks or some other? So, so we, we, we use uh, Microsoft uh, Dynamics GP. It's a full-blown uh, accounting software. Are you software. able to know your gross profit margin then by different categories, like what we're talking yes. about? Yes. Yep. And, and we've got three, three categories, construction, building automation, and then service. So service is the highest building automation, and then construction is the lowest. Service is your highest gross profit margin, but it's also the one with the constraint. 
Correct. There's, there's a lot yep. of, lot of, uh, yep. Okay. How are you tracking people's capacity? Like, do you have an idea right now of who, who's fully utilized, who's not? Do you have a way to predict jobs coming in the future based off of either historical, like knowing every July we get hammered because, you know, these commercial places need, you know, air conditioning units installed. So we can predict now that July and August, we are going to get hammered. So maybe you don't take a certain job in May that's going to lock people up for six months because it's at a gross profit margin. That's half the gross profit margin of the predicted July jobs coming in. Are you guys doing anything like that? There's definitely um, fluctuations as far as when the market is hungry. It seems like when everybody's looking for work at the same time, jobs go cheaper. When everybody's busy, margins inflate, right? And to try to get a read on the market is really important. And are you doing anything like that? So- we, we do that based on feedback of, of bids, right? So let's just say you lose a project, right? And you lost it for uh, 10%. That's a lot, right? On, on a job that, that we only mark up 20%, right? To cover our overhead and make, uh, make our profit at the end. So in that case, we would say more than likely that company is hungry for work. There's always a possibility they just missed something, right? But, but yeah, we're, we're definitely keeping our, our our thumb, our, our thumb on the pulse of, of the market. What, what just curiously of a hundred percent of the bids that you render, what's your hit rate? And it might be different for different types, sizes. If you know it, it's nice to know. And before you answer, uh, I was fascinated in the commercials. I mean, in the government sector, they estimate that it costs a minimum of a hundred and up to $300,000 a bid. And they get one out of 10 on average. So they're into it a million dollars to get one job. So they have to really play it very astutely. But if your bid, ra- if your if your hit rate is one out of five, and you can make it one out of four, the dynamic that that creates obviously is pretty profound. But do you know what they are? So, so overall, I've, I, I've pulled this up, and so we've got our total bid count, and then our awarded. Okay. And now, now where this gets skewed a little bit is that projects get rebid. Okay. And so every time they get rebid, you can lose it. So picture you, you put together a project, it, it totals up to $100 million for the, the owner. And they say, that's too high for us. I need you guys to redesign the building and cut whatever, X amount of dollars. So every time we do that, we actually bid it, but you, you can only win that project once. So let's say something gets rebid five times. Mm-hmm. You can only ever win that once, but you can lose that five times. Each one of those rounds, you could lose it. So it's it's somewhat murky in that. Yeah, that's very complex. But it, it is how much, and as you're answering this, how much weight do you think, if you can even uh, ascertain it, comes from the relationship you have with whomever is going to make that decision? Absolutely, it, it carries a lot of weight. But at, at the end of the day, if somebody comes in, you know, a million dollars cheaper than you, that that tends to uh, your relationship can only go so far. You know what I'm saying? I do. <laughs> I think I do. You also have to track though predicted uh, gross profit margin too, because if you're losing deals, if you have a lower hit rate, but you're losing the deals that weren't super interesting, it means something different than you know if the expected gross profit margin were amazing on those deals, right? So as long as you have a high hit rate on the you know more profitable, higher gross profit per hour. There you go. Our yep. deals, you know, so you can't just be looking at that as an isolated metric of your hit rate. You have to also look at it conditional on the expected gross profit margin you're getting on the service side. 
And, and I would wonder, and, and again, you probably have great people, but it'd be fascinating to evaluate if there are people other places that have a higher hit rate, wouldn't it? All things being equal. Yeah, that, 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 w- that would be fascinating. I'm not sure outside of, a, you know, that's kind of protected information from one, one company to, a, to another locally in the same geogra- geography, you know? Uh, an example would be you could have a really terrible hit rate, like a 1%. But the one that you hit locks up your whole team for a 12-month period at a massive gross profit margin. And even though you have a low hit rate, you're doing the best you potentially are ever doing. So it's not, so it's not necessarily higher low hit rate. It's conditional on what your profit margin. And so you could almost like tranche it. What's your hit rate when your expected profit margin is 70%? What's your hit rate when you're trying to target a 60%? Because obviously the the lower you bid, the higher your hit rate's going to be, but then it's affecting your gross profit margin on the back end of that. Interesting. That's, that's, that's a great idea. So, so Jay, I did pull up my sheet right here. And although we have it by lines of business, on average, you blend it all together. It's about 18, 18% of our, of our bids are uh, by quantity. That's by quantity, not by dollar volume. And it is interesting because I learned long ago, and, and Nick is, is not just alluding, he's explicitly going here is that all jobs aren't the same, all, all categories and profit has to do with, you know, with your percentages, but also the aggregate dollars. So it's interesting if you broke it out and looked at different ones, and it might tell you a story of where to concentrate more or less on, because if you see that that you're, you're hitting, you know, 50% on certain ones, then the question is, are those ones that are worth either going after or having an isolated team for? Be nice. The data usually tells a lot more story if you break it into more a granular and, and isolate it more by by categories. Nick, you want to pick up on that? Well, yeah. And I was also going to say, you know, this profit margin per hour, just to talk a bit more, that only is an issue if if like really there's a capacity constraint. Is it hard? If you got booked tomorrow, if you hit every bid and everyone all of a sudden got to full capacity, how hard would it be to find additional resources and hourly employees, would that really take a long time to ramp up? Or could you have a backlog of people like on a bench that you could tap into in case if you do get um, tied up? Since COVID, it's really been a limiting factor for everyone in the construction industry where there's significantly more work than there are people that can do that work. So I'd, I'd say most of the projects across all building trades, whether you're putting in the steel, the drywall, the paint, concrete, whatever, they're all understaffed, right? And because of that, it's it's been good for our margins because you know if what once you're when, once you kind of fill your 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 man hour seats, right? Like seats on a plane, the the first seats that are bought way out at way way in advance, they go cheap. And then once it's fully booked, right? Yeah, they'll sell you a ticket at twelve hundred dollars and then bump somebody they sold a seventy six dollar an hour a dollar ticket. You know what I'm saying? So is the assumption that there's no gaps? that all your people are deployed constantly? That is our goal. No, no, I'm I'm assuming, but I'm asking for verification. At this point in time, is that a truth and reality? And if it's not, what's the, if you looked at uh, a year or a month or a quarter or whatever, how much non-utilization is there? Because I think that's a factor too, Nick. So, So we've been fully utilized and overbooked for, you know, over the last 18 months, for sure. Just as a sign of the economy, low interest rates, right? And what do you think the trend is? What are they predicting in your industry right now? 
so with with the interest rate hikes, things are definitely starting to slow down. So you're seeing projects kind of shrink. Um, some projects are tabled altogether if they were on the fringe of working, you know, at, at a lower interest rate. Uh, for sure, th- things are, are feel like they're slowing down. And would you say that the vast majority is new construction rather than retrofitting stuff? New construction is slowing down. Retrofit doesn't show any signs, you know, existing buildings that are just kind of modifying for their expansion or, or repurposing their spaces. That seems to be holding steady. Interesting. So let's talk about influence. Who are the influencers that you can get greater advantage over? Are they the the engineers? Are they the architects? Who, who normally are they the the generals? I mean, who are maybe they're all of the above or none of the above? The engineers definitely are at the table with the owner. You know, as, as the owner's making a decision on recommendations, generally your general contractor will make a recommended set of contractors. These are the people I recommend and here's why, right? The engineer can chime in as well. One person we don't call on is the architect and nearly certain the architects at the table as well. So interesting. And the only reason you don't contact them is that you don't contact them. We're just not working. Our our day-to-day is not not with them. And and, and as far as what I'd call your your sales or biz dev? I mean, is there a team that does that? So our, our business development does call on engineers and general contractors. Is there a massive, I mean, what's the prospect uh, complement? How many are there that they call on? Is there a static quantity of 100, 200, 500, or is it just infinite? Do you mean uh, engineers and architects? Or- yeah, you, you, got, you, got a biz de- you got a biz dev department or, or person or five people, whatever it is. And then you've got a target audience. How big is the target audience quantitatively? I'd say there's probably somewhere in the, the neighborhood of 300. If you add up your general contractors that do commercial and industrial and engineers, right? Somewhere in the neighborhood of 300, give or take 100, just to okay. give you an order and of magnitude. How many biz dev people? We have one, one biz dev uh, person. How many people can they contact in the course of, it doesn't matter, week, day, month, year? Right now, we task them with with a low quantity, but but a highly targeted uh, a quality. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I get it. But if it and, and what do you have to pay a biz deaf person roughly? <laughs> a, a, a lot, a lot. Okay, so if but they have they come from the background of knowing the business. Is that correct? Yes, very. very have great yeah. uh, interpersonal skills. That's correct. Technical and interpersonal skills. Be very. Which is a hard skill set. Yeah, it'd be very interesting if there are 300, because calling on 300 people repetitively in the course of a year for one person is probably a, a somewhat of an arduous job if they were calling on everybody, wouldn't it be? Absolutely, right? Right? How many people could one person effectively build relationships with? Yeah, but you could argue if the jobs you know vary and an average one is 800,000 and you're making... 20%, but that's after you're paying everyone. Is that right? Or is that 20%? Industry standard is seven, eight or 9% on, on the bottom line operating income. Okay. And, it's, it, and without being too revealing, are you in line? Or are you, are you above that? So seven, eight, 9% is in good times. I'd say in good times where we're, we can, we have reported above that. And in bad times, like uh, recently with inflation, inflationary, when, when you're committed to a contract, and your your costs of, of metal go up, you know, it, it definitely chips away at that or your wages increase 
Well, here's a concept. If you said that, and again, I don't know if they cost 200000 or 100000 or there's variability, but it would probably be very interesting to look at how many potential influence, all things being equal. If you tell me that even though you're bidding, there is weighted advantage if you're bidding for something that your company, your organization, and your representative has a very strong relationship with. If you say you're bidding, I mean, and this is something you can easily find out. If you're bidding, if you look at the last 100 bids you did or whatever the quantity and you ask how many of those contracts did your biz dev person have a meaningful relationship with, if it's 100%, then the next question is, did you bid all the jobs you could that they didn't and only concentrate on that? Or did you bid a lot of jobs that they didn't and you that you didn't get? And I just want to see the correlation because it might be worth your while at least for six months to see what would happen if you hired another biz dev person. If there are certain marginal ones that aren't as good, but you'll take them anyhow, maybe you get a lesser person. If there's ones that are worth 800,000 to X million and you're working at 10%, which is only 80 grand, but if you were working at 20, it's 100. Point is, will they justify their, their existence with one contract? And can they get one contract weighted in your advantage in the course of a of a six months or a year? I don't know, but it's an interesting question that that might be a bottleneck too, and it may not, but 300 influencers for one person many times a year would be, you know, if, if, if they're not even situated in the right, in one place, and you're going to spend two or three hours with them, I would say that it's statistically not very pro- probable that they'll get to everybody with any meaningful frequency, would you think? For sure. You'd have to prioritize, you know, use your time wisely. Yeah. I'm just trying to give you to think differently. Sure. The, the, uh, like the cost of acquisition is something we've never really dug into and and calculated that. Right. And it probably would reveal that, that another uh, business development person would probably pay for their self, assuming we have capacity on our tradespeople to, to put in the work. But and here's what would probably happen. And I'm going to ask, I'm going to hypothesize that if you got jobs that your competitors didn't, then theoretically, some people would probably be available because they weren't working as much. But I may not. I mean, sure. it, yeah. I, I would imagine that if there's going to be a slowdown, having a an advantage with all the decision makers, all things being equal, would probably be a very wise a strategic and maybe even a recessionary move that you could you could at least contemplate. But I'd want to see correlations. I'd want to say, okay, how many bids did we get that we had a good relationship with? How many to get we didn't? How many did we not get that we didn't or did? And see if they if if it tells a story. It may not, but normally it does. That's, that's an excellent point. We could uh, we could go back through the last bids in the last two or three years and, and kind of categorize them. You know. There's a very interesting, and it's not a negative, it's a clinical observation. I'm fascinated all the time at people who have salespeople or they have marketing allocation and it's just arbitrary. It's 5% of last month or it's an arbitrary 10 or $15,000 a month. And I always say you're either paying too much or too little. You should have an allowable acquisition cost that you're willing to invest, not spend. It has nothing to do with spend. Everything you do is an investment that you should be doing for a yield. Lamentably in your business, it's a very longer play. But if you say, okay, how many 
And just if you, if you have a great relationship with your biz dev man or woman, the question is how many, how are we discriminating? Are we getting the yield out of, out of the deployment of your, of, of your resource, your human capital? If we are, but we're losing jobs we don't have a relationship with. And if we only got one of them, would that pay for in year one for a person? And if you said, okay, all things being equal, if you're at X, whatever your volume is, if you were at uh, X plus 160 hypothetical profit that paid one year for one person and you got the residual going forward, would that strategically be a good move? I don't know, but it seems like it's worth thinking seriously about, doesn't it? Absolutely, especially if they're if that biz dev for targeting to hire gross profit per man hour jobs. Yeah, because we can throw out some of the ones that that appear to be lower, right? Where they're labor heavy jobs. You know, you might find somebody that either worked for some of these other people and left, you know, for something else, maybe not biz dev or retired or. I mean, there's all kinds of people you can, I mean, I'll tell you something funny, and, and I don't know this will happen, but during COVID, just as a really wild illustrative example, when everybody was trying to reduce their overhead, they were letting the best people go because they were the most expensive. What they didn't think about was these are the people that had spent all this time and effort building goodwill with all these decision makers, and it resided with them more so than even the company sometimes. And they were just left to fend for themselves. I had clients, we would find them and we would pay them generously to make introductions to us because they weren't on, you know, they had no confidentiality. Most didn't have any kind of a non-compete. The non-compete would have been approached a little bit by what happened, but we were able to make enormous money by utilizing those relationships. And I'm telling you that because there's probably people that, worked in different capacities and had relationships with a lot of the decision makers that no one has thought about that you might be able to find and recruit by doing some interesting searches on LinkedIn. And if you find them, again, if 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 the worst case, you make a couple hundred grand a job and somebody could build you a long-term, very, very positively predisposed group in those fields, it would seem like a very good investment long-term besides, but it's not one that people in your industry normally think about, very frankly. Yeah, absolutely. It, it does sound like that would be a, a, a good use of our, uh, of investment funds, you know, investing in, in uh, additional biz dev. And worst case, I mean, is they set up the future because if we think that new construction is going to slow and and retrofitting is going to be big. Is that going to be the same market as different influencers, different contractors? I mean, being being proactive strategically is a rarity in, in the trades. I don't think that's one of the attributes your industry is known for. But if you're the one that is, long-term, you have huge advantages. And Nick, I'm dominating, so why don't you take over? All right. So Brad, I have a stupid question potentially, and then I'll have a smart question. Let's start with the stupid one. Um, potentially stupid. So have you ever experimented with salary employees? Why hourly? If you have so much demand and they're always at full utilization, how many hours a week on average is, are each of your hourly employees working? So in Pennsylvania, there's actually wage classifications where depending on what you do, 
you, you, you have to be hourly or salary. How many employees do you have right now? So we have 160 employees right now. Everybody in the construction industry was understaffed. So we were really pulling out all the stops and any idea we could come up with uh, from referral programs to, uh, you know, if, if you know a guy and refer him, I'll pay you even though you don't work in the company, right? It, typical, indeed, anything that, that we could do it. And, and it really did turn over so, some stones throughout the last couple of years. And and you have very low attrition, Brad? The problem with when you hire a lot of people quickly, they're not all going to work out, right? Um, quality trades, trades people definitely stay here for the long term, right? You have a great um, culture. We, we do have a strong culture here. And that's that's why what keeps people here that, uh, you know, but we need them to show up, work hard, um, know what they're doing, be a skilled trades, trades person, be skilled in their trades. So, so- only because I want to respect your goal, Nick, you know, I'm going to let you with your uh, organizational brilliance, since I'm uh, a poster boy for adult ADD, come back to one of Brad's primary concerns: is how do you, how do you standardize jobs that have no standardization theoretically whatsoever attached to them? I'm sure you have the answer because you are a brilliant thinker. And I <laughs> yeah, that was the next thing I want to talk about. But just to highlight something we were talking about before, you know, one strategy might be actually you take a hit on your profit margin to win as many bids as possible and then, you know, hurt your co- competition. So then their staff is underutilized and then you use it as a way to swoop them up, you know, but it's like a, you know, it's a long term play. Yeah, it is an interesting strategy if you have enough, but you have to have enough, yeah. enough large enough jobs that aren't being given. I mean, you have to, and probably what that would return, then they'd go after the little ones, wouldn't they? It's kind of like Uber strategy where they were losing money at the beginning just to get you changing your behavior to not take cabs and you know not take Lyft. And then they jack their prices up once, once they've kind of penetrated. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk through just process wise. Um, how You started off saying that the way that jobs are communicated and they're there's a bunch of people on a job and you said how the job is communicated and planned is a mess. Is that right? That, that, that's right. Whenever we have, we send out a survey to our four men and four, four women and say, hey, what do we need to work on? Right. And this is, goes back for years. There'll be a number of things on the list and it's, there's always communication needs to improve every single, and every single time we work on improving our communication. Right. And the next time we survey, they say, Communication needs to improve. So is it communication or is it how work is managed? I believe reading through the, the comments that when they say communication, they're saying that something got, something didn't get conveyed in the work. Mm. Okay. So what's your process? Like what tools do you use and how are you guys communicating and managing all the work for a, for a job that needs to get done? Sure. So our communications are very traditional. So we have, uh, like our field foreman, we're, we're emailing, we're texting, you know, there's just no history. And then you might need to change out a foreman last second because they're not available. And that history of getting them familiarized with the scope of what's included, what's not included. Yeah. You start up to, you have to forward 627 emails and screenshots of texts and stuff. Right. And it's just, something gets dropped. Well, email and text weren't built, you know, to solve the problems that you're trying to have itself. Have you guys experimented? What, what what do you use for email? Gmail? We use Microsoft Outlook. 
Yep, we're Microsoft. Oh yeah, you said before you're on yeah, Dynamics. Embedded. Have you experimented yep. with Microsoft Teams as an internal communication platform? So we do use Teams, right? When COVID popped up, that was kind of like our first Zoom, you know, but we we never used it for any extensive chatting, conversation, uh, boards, things like that. What are the types of conversations that you're primarily... I mean, obviously you're having a million conversations. You're talking to finance about your P&L, you're talking, but the the large percent of volume, it sounds like it's conversations around a project that people are on. Is that right? That's right. So, so it could be conversations of, um, have you released for production uh, an air conditioning uh, rooftop unit, right? For a given project, right? This, this uh, piece of equipment needs to change because it's not going to fit. Conversations like that that are going both from the field into the office and vice versa. And how tech savvy are the people that work for you? They vary depending on, on person, <laughs> but, but yeah, but most of our, most of our foremen and four women have, have, uh, are four people. They, they have iPads, most of them, not all of them, you know, and use them to varying degrees. So right now, all 160 hourly employees, they have an Outlook account and they're emailing and texting each other arbitrarily in no in the field i'd say 25% of our our people do not have a company email or a company cell phone right so as as we're okay. emailing them a schedule for where they're going next week that's going to their personal email or their or we're texting their personal phone okay so personal email we can but, let's double so that's not our, our all of our leaders are on you know our, uh, our that are leading the project teams in the field they all have company emails so, so the example you said before about what was a couple examples on a project you said you might need to replace something or what, what was the example? Right. Co- coordinating equipment, the, the, the type, right. the configuration, the, when right. you release so, it. So, so who's, who's now having that conversation? It's a leader in your company that does have a work email. That's right. Yes. And are, are they coordinating that amongst other leaders? And then the people that you're communicating with personally aren't involved in that conversation? That's right. And most of these things are actionable things like we need to get this done by Friday and Jay is responsible for doing that. Is that, you got is it. that the case? Spot on. Yep. All right. Well, on a positive note, this is quite an easy problem to fix. So how many people fall into this leader bucket um, that you're talking about then? You have 160 employees, but how many people would, you know, would sure. need to uh, solve this problem? 60. 60. 60 to 70. Yeah, and call, what, call it 60. How much time do you think these 60 people on average waste a week by not having this problem solved? Just thinking about the possibility of how big it could be is making me feel uneasy and stressed. Well, let's just so do, it's, 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 it's kind it's, of fun. Before we solution, like, let's try to identify how big of a problem. Like, what are we talking? Like 20% of their time is wasted because of this or 10% or 50%? Like what? It could be 10 to 20%. More so than right. time, it's when the mistakes are made, right? It's, what kind of mistakes could it be? So let's you forget just say, to replace something. Let's just say you release a hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment that's that's the in the wrong configuration that'll never work once it arrives, right? Six months from now, it just won't fit. And then does that set you back six months, or like there's replacement <laughs> costs and other? Oh yeah, yeah. All right, right. So right. actually, it it could be far more than twenty percent when you factor in your increased risk of a ball getting dropped. And and then That's also right. Jay was talking about culture. I'm sure when the balls get dropped, there's also aside from efficiency gain and all that, probably trust deteriorates when, deteriorates when 
you know, there's one of these issues and then there's friction and then there's culture bleed over too, right? So I don't know what your payroll is for those 60, but if you even say 20%, you know, on a annual basis, whatever that is, we talking hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, 20%. Let's just see really quick. Say they make $100,000 on average, you got 60 people, that's 6 million. 20% on 6 million is 1.2 million. How far off are we from 100,000? Right. I, I mean, that, that that would get you into the ballpark or order of magnitude, right? Depending on, on, on the person. Yeah, yeah. All right. And so it's like a million dollar problem. I think that we could solve the million dollar problem in 30 days for you. That'd be a pretty good one. How would you do it? So you're using a communications tool when you need to be using a work management tool. An example I use in the book, I think you read, remember the part in the book? go camping in the forest, you need walkie-talkies to communicate, but you also need a map to navigate out of the forest. You guys are using walkie-talkies when you need a map. So there's tools like Asana. Every project that you get, you create a project in Asana and you list out all the different requirements needed, the dependencies, the tasks, the milestones, and then any conversations around the project as a whole, you do it on the project board. Any conversations on an individual task, replace this air conditioning unit right? That's a task in there. And then all the conversation about replacing the air conditioning unit is isolated and organized just right there on that one task. If you want to swap out every single person on that project and next week replace them with with a whole new set of people, it takes you... Obviously, there might be some ramp up, but it's all in one place. All conversations, all tasks, all work is in one place and you don't need to be you know, chasing random email threads and text messages. You keep it all there and clean. And in, in, in our experience, you can get 60 people in 30 days ramped up on Asana and you're done. You, you know, with, with the text message and email thing, the retrieval, you talk about the retrieval is where the problem is with that yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. It's, it, there's just no string of history of what was talked about, what you needed, what was the answer to that? And, and would that would that be Asana or would that be something like like a Microsoft Teams chat well, string? My, look, what would what would the right solution it, so, be for that? So there's good and there's better here, right? So you could go Microsoft Teams and every project you create a channel, and that's better than what you're doing now. And that's but that's still suboptimal to what I'm talking about because still it's a walkie-talkie, it's a communications tool, and you still need a map. The right way of doing this, if it were my company, I would roll out Asana. Luckily, I know a company that can help you do that if you need help, but you could also do it on your own if you want. But you need to, you, you create a project for every, every project that you have and you list out all the tasks and you talk there. The Microsoft Teams, you could create a whole channel hierarchy and, and have kind of like a, you know, like a team for each project and then create channels within each of that. But still... It's just not built to solve the problem. People need to click a button and know exactly what they need to do today. You need to be able to have one, as a CEO, you should have a 30,000 foot view of the status of all your projects. Say you have, how many projects do you have going on right now? Dozen, two dozen? 30, 30, 40, something like that. So three dozen projects, like you should be able to have a dashboard and click a button and see what are all the projects you know, on track, off track, at risk. You could do that in a tool like Asana. You click a button, you could see, here are all the red ones. Here are all the green ones. And then you know where you can focus because you can see this, right? Instead of asking people and chasing them, what's the status of this? You get the culture so that there's a cadence where every week or month, 
They're doing a status update on the project and you don't even have to ask people. It should just be there. You can go and click and find the answer you're looking for faster than going and asking people. That's a secondary benefit. The main benefit is you keep everything in one place and it's it's more uh, organized. So rolling out uh, uh, something like Asana, so, so my team is distributed in the field, right? Because they're on construction sites. Typically, how uh, I'm the chief rollout of initiatives at Dual Temp, right? And so typically I would meet with a group over the course of three weeks, I'd be meeting with groups over breakfast or, or whatever, right? And then we would go live. What, what would the, how, how did, what does that look like? What does that process look like where I would be meeting with people, yeah. rolling it out? Do, do you, do you go live? Or do you, do you just flip a switch at the end of, of <laughs> or do you do it after you talk to each group? Like I talked to a group, now we're communicating in Asana. Talk to the next group, now we're, t- is that clear the question? Yeah, yeah. If, if it were me, I would get everyone on a Zoom and say, look, you know, at, at, my, at, at, at our company, we need to improve the way we are. We've done a lot of surveying and feedback, and we've come to know that uh, everyone's complaining about how we communicate. And these are the things that we've heard from you, mm-hmm. right? In order to solve this, you know, we've hired leverage or we've, you know, we've decided that we're going to use a tool called Asana. And we know that no one likes new tools, but this is why this is going to be better than the way that we're doing it. And then you show them a demo of, you know, a real life project that you guys are working on and you run it through Asana and you can like kind of show them a vision of what the future could look like. And then you say, look, this isn't going to be rocket science, but we, we understand it's a behavior change. And we are over the next 30 days going to give you proper training and hold your hand and make sure that you're set up for success. And by the end of the 30 days, we're going to have a completely new way of working that's going to make your life better, the company more profitable. You're going to be able to save 20% of your productivity that is going to give you that extra breathing room to do whatever you need with it. You know, And then you don't have to be stressed. If you go on vacation, everything's all in one place. So now you're not a bottleneck. If someone leaves the company, we're not going to have to spend countless hours, you know, forwarding stuff and trying to stitch together the conversation. There's going to be less balls dropped so that if we order the wrong thing, that in six months, we're not going to get stuck with that situation. And you just name all the benefits. And it's like, look, and these are the ways that we're going to support you. We're going to get access to video training, live training, one-on-one coaching, you know, all these resources, and you'll be set up for success. And again, this isn't rocket science. This is you know, a relatively simple, simple tool. Now, different people have different degrees of tech savviness, but the way that you need it set up is you need to teach them the basics of how to use the tool. Every project is a project in Asana. It's literally called project. So you're doing a commercial project, you know, somewhere in Allentown, like you name it, list out all the, all the things that need to happen. Some of them will be dependent on others, so on and so forth. And then you as the CEO, you have what they call a portfolio and you list out all the projects that you care to see in one dashboard. And in one place, you could see stat, like how far, you know, I'm eight, we're 80% of the way done with project A. We're 40% with project B. The one that's 80%, actually it's at risk. Why is it at risk? Okay, well, it seems like a part got messed up and we're six months behind. So we're 80% done, but now we're stuck. So now that's why that one's not green. The 40% one we're on track. We're actually ahead of schedule on that one. So we mark it green. And in one place, you just see red, yellow, green, with a little status update. And then you could click into whatever you want and get even more details. But it, it gives you that dashboard and it gives the team 
a centralized place to see everything that's getting done and needs to get done without things getting lost, slipping through the cracks and having mess ups. Yeah. How do, how do I become an expert in a sauna, right? I, I can't rule something out that I'm not, I'm not knowledgeable about what's, what, what's, uh, yeah. what's the best resources, you know, to become a subject matter expert in a sauna. We have training programs. And again, I'm not trying to make this a sales pitch for, for our stuff, but we have, we have training programs. You should just go through that. Um, it's relatively inexpensive and quick. So you could, you could do that with a subgroup of your team for like a first pass before doing 60. You know, you could get like 10 of them in there and then you guys make a decision after you, you go through 10. Gotcha. Even if, they, even if you don't use it across the whole team, it, it'll be helpful for you on a personal level. But that, that's the ultimate solution that is going to give you the best results. Good. All right. One thing that we always like to ask are, what are a few of the key takeaways you got from today's call that you are planning on implementing and maybe we'll have you back in six or 12 months and we'll see where you're at? Yeah, so it definitely sounds like it makes sense to slice and dice our, our bid projects, right? We had talked about the gross margin of those projects, the gross margin per hour, right? And see if the hit rate is, is if there's any, there's any trends there, right? If there's any actual items like that, we talked about how there's, um, there's a lot of people who could be customers that we're not currently calling on through our, uh, our business development. Uh, and we could do a, uh, a more thorough job with that. And we also talked about on the communication front, how there's uh, new tools that have come after text message that works way better than text message and, and way better than, than the email silos uh, for executing, you know, our construction work. So that's definitely something that, that at dual temp we're going to be exploring and seeing if it's a good fit for us to, uh, to take that to the next step. Awesome. Well, Brad, it was a pleasure having you on the show and we look forward to checking with you sometime in the future and seeing all the amazing results you get from, from some of these tips and strategies. Cool guys. I appreciate your time. And, uh, it, it was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you find this show helpful, please hit the follow or subscribe button. It does wonders for the show so more people can find the optimized podcast organically. If you'd like to be on the show, we have an open invite to anyone who wants their challenges solved. If you want to get in the hot seat, you can submit your business right now at theoptimizedpodcast.com. If we think you're a good fit, we'll get you on the show. If you have any questions or recommendation, drop us a comment right here, wherever you're listening to your podcast. We'd love to hear from you. See you on the next episode.